0: To have the opportunity to stand in for Gavin this morning. Uh, if I understand correctly, he and Emily are out of town. I think Emily's sister is getting married uh, this weekend, and so this is a time of great joy for them, and we should rejoice with them. I want to begin what I have to say with a public service announcement. Uh, beginning in October, on Wednesday nights, out here, we're going to have a, study, a Bible study on church history. And so we'll be beginning at the beginning, the establishment of the church, the, uh, the time of, of persecution that came uh, up upon the early Christians, uh, all those strange things that happened during the dark ages coming forward into the period of the Reformation movement, and eventually the Restoration movement, bringing us up to today. And it's going to be a time where we're going to be focusing on connecting the dots And answering the question, why is it that the religious world is the way that it is today? But as we pass through those ages, when we're talking about the Reformation movement, we'll also be talking about the European Renaissance. Now, this was the time of of Galileo and uh, Copernicus, uh, Michelangelo and and, uh, not Leonardo DiCaprio, um, (laughs) Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, of course, those are names that we probably recognize without having to dig too deep in our memory. Um, but the individual that i 'd like to talk a little bit about as we begin this morning is blaise pascal he 's probably on the second le- level of, of of thinkers that we would you know associate with this particular time frame. Um, he was a brilliant young man he sort of like Mo- mozart he was he, at a very early age, he began to demonstrate his his mathematical prowess in particular. Now, he was also a, phys- a physicist, and he got, like a lot of these Renaissance men uh, of that age, they, he got into a lot of different areas. Um, but mathematics was primary, primarily his uh, his area of expertise. And um, I want to take you through something that, that blaze. Pascal is known for, uh, and, and I do so with, with a little bit of caution. Um, I, I don't want to cause any post-mathematic stress reaction, okay, uh, but, but this is called Pascal's triangle, and what you see on the left-hand side are beginning with a monomial and then a binomial, and then the, the binomials increase by by powers of, of one at each level. It's sort of a cascade of, of these Um, binomial equations. And then on the right-hand side, we have the the equations that have been basically expanded. And what I want you to focus your attention on in particular are the coefficients of each one of those um, parts of of the uh, expansion. And what we're going to do is we're going to take the letters out of the way so that all we see are those coefficients. And you might notice then that there's a pattern as we go through each level. Uh, 1 plus 1 equals 2, 1 plus 2 equals 3, and so does 2 plus 1. And this this pattern just continues as you go down the triangle. And the triangle doesn't end here. It just keeps going and going and going. No matter how many powers you put on the binomial equation, the expansion follows this pattern. And so this is referred to as Pascal's Triangle. Now, I have to to tell you that Pascal wasn't actually the first one to elucidate all this. Uh, There were actually mathematicians in India and China that figured it out before Pascal did, but Pascal did it in the West, and we live in the West, and so that's why we call it Pascal's Triangle. Now, Pascal was not only a a mathematician. um, He went through this period in his life where he didn't believe in God. He was born into a a Roman Catholic family, but for about six years, he went out into the world. He became despondent. He had a lot of health problems. He died at the age of, of 39, so he died relatively young. But for whatever reason, for about six years, he found himself not believing in God before returning to his faith and actually, he came back stronger than he ever had been before. And one of the things that's on his resume is that of being a theologian. And, and his mathematics and his, his theology actually come together in a very interesting way called Pascal's Wager. So Pascal's Wager is a, um, is a thought experiment that, that Pascal came up with to help explain the reasonableness of believing in God. So you'll see then that we have four quadrants here. On the the left-hand side, we have two choices, either to believe in God or to not believe in God. And then on top, we have the fact whether God exists or whether God doesn't exist. So the way he worked through it is like this. If we believe in God, And God, in fact, exists. That's the best possible outcome that we could have, right? We believe in God. We do His will. We live the life that He wants us to live. And then at the end of this life, we receive the promises that He has made to us, okay? Now, let's say, though, that we believe in God, but in fact, God doesn't exist, well, then we live our lives as if we were Christians. We do all of the things that a Christian ought to do. But when we get to the end of this life, then, well, that's it, because God doesn't exist and nothing happens beyond this life. The third choice then is if we don't believe in God and God doesn't exist, well, then we live our lives as if we don't believe in God. And when we come to the end of this life, God doesn't exist. It's all over. All right. So that's the third choice. The final choice then is if we don't believe in God, but we get to the end of this life and the worst possible outcome is realized. Eternal conscious torment. And so the way Pascal reasoned through this, he said it's so much more reasonable to believe in God and to obey God than it is to not because the possible outcome of believing in God if he doesn't exist is so much better than believing if we don't believe in God and he doesn't exist and we suffer eternal conscious torment. Now, I don't know about you, but... this sort of rings in my ear as, as though uh, we're, we're believing in God just, you know, because we don't want to go to hell. And I don't know about you, but I, that doesn't sound like a very pleasant you know, way to live your lives. And so what I've done is I've thought about the temporal benefits of being a Christian I mean is it really the same to say that if we if we believe in god and god doesn't exist it's the same as if we don't believe in god and and god doesn't exist are we really saying that those are two equivalent things i don't think so instead i believe that the the benefits of of being a christian in this life so far outweigh a life lived as if god exists as, as if god doesn't exist that We're going to be, even if we get to the end of this life, we're looking back on this life, we're saying this was a life well lived. Even if there's nothing beyond this, this was a life well lived. So what I want to talk about with you this morning, basically answering the question, is Pascal's wager a good bet? But what we're really talking about are the temporal benefits of being a Christian. The benefits that we enjoy in the here and now by being a disciple of Christ and by doing his will. And it begins with a sense of purpose in life. So whenever we don't believe that God exists, there, there is no, there is no uh, purpose in life. Because we believe, we believe that there is a, a grand scheme that God has for all of history. We believe that that this scheme is moving the world forward in a certain definite direction. Because we are Christians and we believe what the Bible has to say about God's purpose in the world, then we know that we were created in God's image and that our purpose in life is to live to reflect that image into the world. Of course, there are all sorts of passages that we could look at to demonstrate that, that, that really summarize very concisely, but... But I want you to look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 with me. This passage, I know, is, is very often quoted, very often uh, preached, uh, uh, expounded upon in, in sermons. Uh, Paul tells Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all uh, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So as a result of Christ appearing and the lesson that we learn from the gospel, we, we have a we, we know that Jesus has come to show our purpose in life, that we have God's word to tell us what our purpose in life is, and that we have each other to help us along the way. It's interesting to listen to an atheist explain how they find purpose in life. Some are intellectually honest. They'll say, there is no purpose in life. You know, we're just here. Let's just, you know, make the best of it, Whatever. Um, sometimes you'll hear an atheist try to come up with some kind of purpose in life and it just sounds contrived. But being a Christian, and I would argue that the Christian story of the world is the best story that can be told. The story that, that tells us that the reason why the world is the way that it is is because it's broken as a result of sin in the world. And But that story also includes a, a God who who loves the world and is not willing that it should perish. And so he came to this world in the form of his son and, and taught humankind how to live. And what this means then is redemption for this broken world. This story defines the trajectory of our lives. This story provides for us a, a sense of direction. And we see ourselves folded into that story so that we are an important part of it. The story answers all of the important questions of life. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing while we're here? And most importantly, where are we going? This story answers those questions, and the story is really, really good. Now put this in contrast with the perspective of Richard Dawkins, one of the world's most prominent atheists. He's one of the so-called four horsemen of the new atheism. He wrote this in 1995. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Do you want to live in that kind of universe? I don't. And that's why I think one of the greatest benefits temporal benefits of living as a Christian is a sense of purpose in life. The other thing, another thing that we, that we have <clears throat> is an objective moral standard. Without God, yes, we get to decide for ourselves the way that we live our lives. So there's that. But that doesn't mean that what I decide for myself is any better than what another person might decide for themselves. And a culture or a society can decide for itself and ex- what the acceptable rules of conduct are, but that doesn't mean that that everybody's going to be happy with it. I mean, after all, what is the experience of the 20th century, where you know the the, the Nazis came to decide as a society that Jews Jewish lives didn't matter, um, or the. Uh, uh, in the, the communist societies of Russia and, and China, where you know, property owners were, just had to be taken out of the way. They just, we just had to get rid of them so that everybody else could live on an equal plane. True objectivity in establishing morality must come from outside morality. And when you're a Christian, the source of the, that morality is, of course, God. We believe that there is a God and we believe that he has provided for us an objective moral standard by which we should live. Just to to quote a couple of passages that set forth this moral standard as succinctly as we can. Matthew chapter 2 and verses 37 through 39 where Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then we also have what what Jesus says in John chapter 15. If you've ever heard of the golden rule, this standard of of morality exceeds even the golden rule. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life, for his friends. And remember the context in which Jesus makes this statement. He's going to die the next day for his friends. So basically, what he's saying to us is the, the the moral standard that he expects us to live by is be willing to give your life for your brother and sister in Christ. Now, if there is any objective moral standard to atheism, any consistent objective moral standard to atheism. It would have to be the survival of the fittest. The idea that our job is to survive and reproduce and then get out of the way for subsequent generations. That is the only consistent moral standard. They can come up with utilitarian... uh, philosophies and things of that nature, but it just, you know, again, it 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 just is not credible. It just doesn't ring true. Now, I don't think we need to come to the conclusion that atheists are just atheists because they want to sin. There are some that are like that, but not many. Some will try to base an objective moral standard on this, that, or the other thing, but again, you can't. You cannot demonstrate that one standard is better than the other, and as a result, then, it is not objective. What, what atheists need to realize is that they're really riding on the coattails of generations and centuries of, of people who knew what the, God, the Word of God expected of us and were trying to live by it. Another temporal benefit of being a Christian Is more meaningful relationships. And this is not to say that a person cannot have a meaningful relationship if they don't believe in God, but the foundation upon which those relationships are built. In the the Bible, we have instruction that we receive in building those relationships. And, and, And it makes it so much clearer when we believe in God, when we are disciples of Jesus, and we receive the instructions in in regard to meaningful relationships that that got, that Jesus gave his disciples. 2nd Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 says to those who have have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And on a practical instructional level In most of the epistles of the New Testament, a section of those letters are are, are devoted to describing how we can have better relationships with each other. Just take as an example Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. And patience, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's just no standard that you can find in the world that comes even close to that. Whether we're talking about family or we're talking about friends or we're talking about coworkers, these principles help us have better relationships. When we put these into practice, these principles of interpersonal relationships that are set forth in the Bible, we're going to be more pleasant people to be around. And even more importantly, we're going to attract to ourselves a more pleasant group of people. The next one, the experience of inner peace. Some of us will remember what it was like when the predominant defensive posture of our country against the Soviet Union was a doctrine called MAD. Mutual, assured destruction. And of course, I was, let's see, I was about 26 years old when the Berlin Wall fell, Uh, and, and so I was still quite young when, you know, all of that was being talked about and things like that, but I do remember being maybe a young teenager lying in bed at night thinking about all those missiles over in the Soviet Union that were pointed to the United States, and thinking about all those missiles in the United States that were pointed, I wasn't as concerned about those, you know. But I was concerned about the ones that were pointed at us. And of course, now, you know, we live about five miles from an old missile silo. You know, so they were there. I mean, they were here in, in Arkansas. But I also remember thinking very clearly in my mind, I believe in God. God is sovereign over all. There's not going to be anything that happens in history that is not the will of God. You know, even today you can go on the internet, you can Google existential threats. And you can read all sorts of ways that people have come up with horrible ways that life on earth can come to an end. But the same truth still prevails. God is sovereign in the universe. And we don't have to worry about things ending except the way that God has told us it's going to end. Well, another another important uh, temporal benefit of being a Christian is a contentment that rises above circumstance. You know, as long as we're in this world and we think that This world is all there is and we realize that we're really only going to be here for a short period of time. This naturally creates within us an angst, uh, a a restlessness, a desire to, to do everything that we can and experience everything possible. It's the philosophy of the rich fool. You remember the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But on the other hand, if, you follow, if we follow the instruction of Jesus and we lay up our, our treasures in heaven, then what we experience now and what we happen to be able to accumulate, that becomes unimportant. Paul exhibits this perspective in Philippians chapter 4. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. You know, there's, there's an important distinction between happiness and joy. Happiness, by definition of, of the, you know, the etymology of the word, is tied to our circumstances. Whenever our circumstances are pleasant, then we experience happiness. Joy, on the other hand, is something that we experience just because of who we are and who is mindful of us and what he has promised us. We experience joy regardless of our circumstance. Paul goes on to say, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, because we're talking about the temporal benefits of being a Christian, when we get to the end of this life, we may actually find out that it was all fiction. But here's my point. It's a very useful fiction. Even if it's fiction, it's a great fiction. Another thing is a feeling of belonging. Now, a moment ago, we talked about better relationships. Now we're going to talk about our identity. We have a place to go. We have a people to be with. If in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul is writing about how, you know, in the past his readers had been aliens to the covenants of promise. But now he says, You are fellow citizens and saints with the members of the household of God. God has a household, and we are members of it. We are members of the family of God. We share a common faith. We, we share a common experience in that faith. Now, there are other places that you can go to, to find an association with people. There, there's sports. You know, there's, there's politics. Uh, on the job, we can develop relationships with, with people. But nothing comes even close to the sense of existential commonality than sharing a common faith. Well, I could say more. And you're probably sitting there thinking, well, why didn't, Tim th- why didn't Tim mention this? And I hope you are. And if you are, please share that with me. Maybe I can work that into the next time that I present this, this sermon. But I want to conclude this morning by um, looking at a couple of verses. Jesus in John chapter 10, and this is where Jesus is, is, is presenting himself to his disciples and those others who are there listening to him as the good shepherd. And he's contrasting himself with, you know, the, the hirelings, the people who really are not interested in the well-being of, of the people. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he says in verse 10, I came that they might have life and that they might have it Abundantly, And when you read that, I hope based upon the things that we've talked about this morning, that you'll not just think that what Jesus is talking about is what comes after. You know, the fulfillment of all the promises. Yeah, if we, if we grit our teeth and, and if we you know, are able to muster the strength to make it through this life and do all of those difficult things that God wants us to do, then, then, yes, then we will get to the abundant life. I hope you won't think of that. If you ever thought of that before, I hope you won't ever think about it again. But then look at this. Verse Timothy chapter four and verse eight. For while bodily training is of some value, if you'd like to exercise, okay, there's nothing wrong with that. Bodily exercise is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. And look at what, to, what Paul says as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. So we, we have it great both ways when we live godly lives as disciples of Christ, as children of God. I hope that you benefited some from the things that we've talked about this morning. It's about time for us to dismiss and go to our classes. Thank you very much for your kind attention.